there is little doubt that the world is in desperate need of care. However, despite the overwhelming global problems that we face, we can find ourselves caring too much, being told to care about a gazillion other different things, and we can spend too little time caring about the things that actually matter. My name's Ali Hill, and welcome to Stand Out Life, a podcast dedicated to living boldly amongst the busyness. I'm really excited to share with you this episode today with someone who's on a mission to have all of us embark on the radical art of taking time, taking time to care. Brooke McCallery is someone who's, she's not new to transformational change. Six years ago, she was completely overwhelmed with everything in her life that looked like success, in inverted commas. At that time, she began to declutter her life and to connect with a slower life. She is the best-selling author of Slow and host of the award-winning Slow Home podcast, which has become my favourite. In this episode, Brooke and I dive into Brooke's latest book, Care, The Radical Art of Taking Time. Brooke unpacks areas in our lives that help us to take more care. In this conversation, we only dive into three of those areas and I have a feeling we may need to do a follow-up podcast in order to dive into the rest. Her book is tactical, is practical, completely relevant for this time. So please take the time to soak up this conversation and welcome the invitation that is extended to you, extended to me, from the beautiful and soulful Brooke McCallery. Brooke, fantastic to be connecting with you and uh, great to be spending this time. Oh, likewise. It's really nice to see your smiling face. Yeah. Yeah. Look, my preference was always to be able to do these face to face, but times are adapting and uh, I'll get it wherever I can. (laughs) Yeah. Video communication has never been so important. (laughs) No, no. And we're mastering the art of that along the way. We're going to spend some time talking about your latest book called Care. And I just want to start by saying congratulations because it is a it's a beautiful and important conversation for our time and we'll dive into some of that um, but it's really evident as you even as you pick it up uh, but as you go through the pages the the thought and the idea and the inquiry that has gone into it so thank you for pulling oh, that together thank you that's really kind yeah it's it's a whole head trip to hold it in my hand and see it in other people's hands now. So I'm glad you enjoy, you're enjoying it. You're obviously no stranger to big life changes, to shifting how you do things. In fact, that's been a big part of what was your second book, uh, Slow, really the message of listening to the busy world of life and and taking a, a whole new different direction uh, is also the big impetus behind your very popular Slow Home podcast. Um, and yet, whilst that is something you've done before, every one of us has been faced with having to make significant shifts in the last 12, 18 months. Mm. I want to start by actually taking you back to March of 2020 And I'm interested in what your experience was across that two to three months after that. Your experience, so here in Australia, I distinctly remember 14th, 15th, 16th of March, very significantly. They were regular conversations from our government and and a national kind of lockdown and massive changes to how we work, how we school, 
how we parent, how we connect, how we don't connect. So I'm interested to take you back and and to understand what your experience of those couple of months following March Mm. of last year. So I have a very distinct memory of the day they announced, the government announced that they were closing the uh, international borders because we were at my mum's 70th birthday. (laughs) And uh, looking back, I mean, that was crazy. There were restrictions. There were no restrictions restrictions in place at that point, but I think we had been in a bit of denial up until then. Ben, my husband and I had a trip planned to Hawaii to, you know, celebrate finishing writing what was going to be this book in April. And we were like, you know, maybe if we get on top of this thing, they might reopen within a month. And obviously that weekend where it was no, we're locking down and you need to get ready to be here for at least at least eight weeks. Life is not going to look the same moving forward. We don't know what it will look like, but, you know, we can be certain that it will be very different. And I think originally I had a lot of hope about it because, you know, I thought it could be this sort of line in the sand where everyone would be able to take a step back and take a breath and recognize the pace at which we live and pre-COVID we're living was, it's just unsustainable. And I think in an ideal world, sure, that would be the takeaway. But I became very quickly aware of the fact that that's a really privileged position for me to have been able to see it from. Uh, And I always knew that, but job security, food security, uh, you know, homelessness, uh, the, the number of issues that, uh, you know, domestic violence and um, mental health issues, all of these things that many people live with and have lived with and will live with had all suddenly bubbled up to the top of, you know, our consciousness, or my consciousness at least. And to me, it was more a reckoning of how broken things are and have been up until then and, and continuing on. Uh, and I found that really hard, you know, to kind of wrap my head around. And I had this tension. I felt really guilty for enjoying how quiet things were because I knew that that meant it was so difficult for so many people. And we weren't, my family and I weren't, we weren't exempt from that. My husband lost all of his business overnight. He's um, self-employed. We both are. So that was terrifying, you know, uh, but we just come at it from a position where we had some financial security. I can't even imagine what it would be like for for people who didn't have that. So I, I really, I think I, I went, <laughs> I rode the roller coaster mm. really quickly. I was at the top and found, you know, this, this might be the moment that we all learn, you know, the dolphins came back <laughs> we to We finally Venice need to slow like, down. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> you know, and then really quickly it became abundantly clear that so much was broken. And I, I think I, I slipped into a quite a deep depression um, fueled by burnout. And it was sort of April, May, I was meant to be finishing the first draft of this book. And I was completely without engagement, energy, care, you know, I was all cared out. And there were weeks that I just could not engage with the world. And it interestingly, I think that was the the impetus for what the book became, because I recognized that I was caring so much about 
COVID and the horrific numbers of cases and deaths that we were seeing unfold and, you know, the divisions that were, it was striking in society. And, you know, we, that was on the back of Black Summer, bushfires and, you know, the whole climate change issue, which I still find myself feeling so um, <laughs> overwhelmed by. Uh, and I, I, I think I burnt out on these big care issues, you know, things that are very important, but also very overwhelming. So initially I thought, well, let's dive into self-care. <laughs> and um, I have issues with self-care or what self-care has become. I think self-care in and of itself is really important and I'm absolutely an advocate for it. But it asks so much of us when perhaps we don't have the capacity to give that to ourselves. So it it's problematic. And the fact that it's, you know, commoditized and tied into the wellness movement is also an issue. So I thought, what's, what's something in the middle, what's the middle ground of caring and what would happen if I lived like that for a little while. And that's where I guess the seed of the book, what it became was planted. So interesting in terms of what you're describing, that amplification of what is broken and that really being asked of our consciousness, being asked of us to to sit with that and the the pull and the guilt and the shoulds and what else can I do and what can't I do and the tiredness and the (laughs) exhaustion um, that all comes with that is something I think a lot of people will resonate in hearing you describe that at that time and we were okay, you know, like, you know, in amongst that was – like we're okay. I know for me and my family, we went to the same coffee shop. We walked down to the beach, <laughs> like almost felt like I, I don't even want to share this with anyone because it feels right. really okay. Yeah, no. And we were, we were the same. Um, we live in a country town, so we were able to access big open spaces and, you know, within a few kilometers of our house and we had space and we had enough laptops. Like we had two laptops to laptops in the house that the kids could both do school and all of that kind of stuff. There were so many things that would have been additional challenges that we just didn't have to deal with. And that felt like guilt almost, you know, I didn't necessarily feel like I could join people in their pain because in a relative sense, we had a lot less to to deal with. But I, I think that that does us a disservice to a certain extent, because if we continue to negate our own feelings just pushing them further and further down. And that's never a good plan. I don't think long-term, uh, I think it's important to have perspective, but I think it's equally important to recognize and honor where you're at. And if where you're at is confused, that's okay. If where you're at is like kind of feeling guilty, but also sort of delighted that all the kids uh, activities have been canceled. That's okay. <laughs> you know, um, we don't have to make a global sense of things all the time. It's okay to just sit in it and feel it and, um, you know, not compare. I think you, t- you also touched on something before about kind of self-care. If we have a bit of time, we might <laughs> jump back into that because I think there, there's probably a much bigger, bigger conversation around, well, what is that and what does that like kind of look like? But if I can go back to, if that helps to put some context into what the book became, what was it before that? And so the idea of the book, obviously the writing had started even before these events and experiences had had become a reality. What was it when you started the book? It was going to be more of an investigation, I guess, into self-care, you know, the modern version of self-care, but also the roots of self-care, like where it 
began and and what its initial intentions were uh, and how it has gradually been co-opted, like so many good countercultural movements, I guess, in our modern history, it gets co-opted by marketers and by, you know, manufacturers and huge corporations who are trying to tap into what people are feeling at any given time. And all of a sudden, this thing that should be accessible and free and, you know, a very fluid thing becomes really marketed and and product driven. Um, So it was kind of, it was probably a little snarkier than the book certainly became. (laughs) And that's the last thing anyone needed was anything pointed after last year. And I I couldn't bring myself to go there either. So it would have been interesting if we had a parallel universe to see if I would have changed the voice of the book anyway. I think I probably would have because that's not really my jam, but I started writing it at a point where I was just so frustrated with what, um, you know, mainstream like media for want of a better term was doing to all of these really powerful cross uh, countercultural ideas and movements. So that's sort of where it started. And I think it really like the, the beginning of the change happened over December, January, when, like everyone, I found myself completely paralyzed as, you know, we watched huge parts of the country burn and there were days where, you know, we, we had bags packed in our car for um, weeks. We had our living room was full of friends stuff because they'd been evacuated and, and sort of stayed out of their house for six weeks. So it was kind of living on tenterhooks um, and that I, laying awake in bed at night, listening to the uh, you know, the fireys radio and stuff, just to, just to make sure that we weren't in the path of anything or the wind hadn't changed or, and I remember being so completely fatigued, you know, emotionally, but also physically fatigued by that. And I think that's probably where my reframe of the book started. And then of course, when, you know, COVID struck in March, that threw everything for a loop. And, um, It's a very different book to what it was going to be, yes. That sense of um, recognising the difference and the different perspectives of what care is, uh, the different language of it, and I, you know, obviously the different pathways that 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 has kind of taken you. I was listening to a podcast only recently and um, it came to mind when I was preparing for this was Good books come from the things that we know we want to share. Great books come from trying to figure out what we need to know. And right. this book feels like something you were figuring out <laughs> along Very the much. way. <laughs> and I think that's true for so many of us when when we're kind of trying to understand it comes from a place of frustration. In that shift of what the book became, what were you what were you figuring out and where where do you think you landed? I, I needed to figure out how to um, care sustainably, you know, uh, in a long-term sustainable sort of way because I'm someone who really feels heavily and hard and, you know, I wear my heart on my sleeve, which has its positives, but it also can be really exhausting, you know, if you're not someone, and I think most of us would put ourselves in this category, not someone who is comfortable with refilling the cup, so to speak. I think that we need to, you know, what I, where I eventually landed was in order to give a shit about the big stuff in the world, I needed to be able to fill that 
cup for want of a better, less cliched phrase. And if I didn't, then ultimately I'm risking everything. You know, I'm risking my ability to care about anything uh, big or small to show up for my family, to do work that feels, you know, authentic and hopefully helpful. And that was a real moment of kind of discovery. I think that we still have this idea that care, be it self-care or anything else is, is sort of either soft, like it's a soft skill. It's um, selfish if it's self self-directed and, you know, it's something kind of wholesome and nice, but it's not really going to make a difference. And I actually push back on that completely. Now I've discovered that actually it really is going to make a difference to the point where I think that caring is a world changing idea, you know, um, it, cause it brings passion and enthusiasm and problem solving and critical thinking ability and health, you know, the benefits to all of the stuff I write about in the book to just our physical health is phenomenal. I mean, if we were able to harness those benefits, it would be like a public health uh, reform, you know, just by caring. So it, yeah, that, I think that's where I wrote myself to in the end, even though it started out as a, almost a personal experiment in what tiny little things can I do that will have an impact it became something much bigger, which is kind of, I don't know, that's what I really like that about it. It's, it's so accessible. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think one of the things you, you mentioned or tapped on is, you know, caring in a big way, deeply, um, feeling things which we get asked to do when marketing pulls us yep. to do, right? Like that's yep. its very purpose. It feels like if that's so exhausting, the only option is to not care or right. to care less because it's costing me too much. Yep, exactly. And I mean, I say it all the time and I've tried to catch myself saying it, but I, when I'm done, when I'm burnt out, when I'm completely spent on the world, I find myself thinking or saying, I don't care, you know, in some capacity, not to someone's face or not in a cruel kind of way, but like, I just can't care about that right now. And I think that's, a self-preservation thing, you know, we try and hold on to what's left of our well-being by doing that. But I also think it's born of overreaching with that big end of the care spectrum, you know, and you're exactly right. Marketing, social media, um, news headlines, that kind of stuff. It's all designed or most of it is designed for us to become engaged with an issue, a topic, whatever, a movement. And if we're not caring about it, then, you know, there's something like we're, we're self-centered or we're ill-informed or, I mean, I wish that everyone could care about everything all the time, but we can't, you know, and if we try, we do ourselves the ultimate disservice because we're sort of eroding, I think the fabric of our, our families and our communities by being so tired, so exhausted, so burnt out that we can't engage. Uh, and I think that's ultimately what's at risk. And some of that's having the choice about it because what marketing does is go care about this, care about this, care about this, yep. and all of a sudden we, we're shattered at the end of the day but we haven't had any choice around some of what that is. Now yep. you talk about kind of nine key principles. Before we dive into those, what, what I'm interested in is do you have any really, when you talk about feeling kind of burnt out and exhausted, what are the practical signs for you? Because I think for people listening Sometimes we don't even recognize that we're, we're in the 
just got to get on with it. You say it's selfish to stop and pause to to recognize other people are just getting on with it as well. I know I'm kind of get fallen into that trap. What do you notice that when you hit that that burnout? What are you? What are other people seeing around you? What's practically some of your kind of triggers or warning signs? Yeah, uh, I think that's a really good question and a really helpful thing for all of us to ask ourselves. You know, what are the behaviors that I find myself doing when I'm just over it, when I'm done. And for me, it's a tech use. To be perfectly honest, it's like the 8.30 PM scroll of Instagram. Like, I don't care. <laughs> None of this is, is making its way in. And I'm not here because there's information that I'm specifically looking for. I am just, I'm tapping out for the day, you know? Uh, and if, I think that's fine to do occasionally, but if that becomes your status quo, you know, if you're, you're constantly looking and I think it's, it's too, it's, it's kind of a two-parter. You're sort of looking for distraction, for numbing, for, you know, not having to engage because we can think that we're engaging, but ultimately usually on social media, we're just passively consuming. Um, but also that is, I think, tapping into this habit that we've formed over years and years of looking for something new to, um, to grab onto you know, like a shiny object, whether it is, uh, you know, something specific to care about or a story or, you know, hashtag or a person or whatever. It's like, give me something. We're really not very good at just sitting with our feelings and being with our thoughts and, uh, you know, letting them come and go as they will. So for me, when I find myself, and it's a, a very specific kind of like um, lethargic scrolling where I'm not taking much in. So that's, that's a, a very good sign for me to watch out for. Uh, and it's also just energy, you know, um, I've had some pretty significant health issues over the last 12 months and I get, uh, I've become quite good at picking up on those physical symptoms as well. You know, if, um, if I'm just getting that, that fuzzy headed, nauseous kind of feeling, I know that I've, I'm running on empty. And I think that that's probably the first thing that we can do in order to start shifting the way that we spend our time and energy is, is to go, okay, what does it look like for me when I am tapped out and um, start to just heighten your awareness of it? It's so critical. I know for me, I snap at the kids or my husband. <laughs> that's always yep. my, when I walk away and go, oh, something's wrong with me. Yep. <laughs> something's gone. Yep. If I find myself shuffling paper, if everything, all of a sudden things look far too messy and yet I could cope with it last week. Yeah. Like those are those really practical things exactly. that I now know and even my husband knows, yeah, maybe it's time to <laughs> go and have yep. a bath or go and catch up with a friend or do something. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And for me, it's also when my exercise drops, like if I, you know, if I don't take the dogs for a walk all the time or every day, or, uh, you know, if I do, I'll just go around the block rather than taking for them the full walk. Uh, and it's that kind of sluggish physical feeling too, that comes alongside that, I think, but yeah, it's so helpful to think about it in practical terms. And also, you know, if you have a partner or if, you know, you've got a close friend, talk to them about what they see because they may pick up on things 
that you don't and probably things that you don't want to hear. I know we think we're hiding it, right? <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> ben will say something and I'm like, I'm, I am not, but that'd be ridiculous. And then I'll think about it. I'm like, yeah, I was totally doing that. It's like a big sign above my hand, of course. Yeah. <laughs> so on that thread, as I said, the book you dive into and really challenge that concept of care, not being soft and fluffy, a nice thing that we get around to when we've got the time, but actually mm. with a core focus, it really can fundamentally change our world, but also be something that impacts the greater world and the mm. greater things that are important. And then you go through nine principles for want of a better word, nine kind of focus areas. I'd love to unpack three of those. If we have a bit more time, we might go further. And the first one I want to dive into is the very first one that you dive into in the book around connection, Mm -hmm. which again is um, on the surface, everyone kind of nods and goes, yes, that makes sense. You got to care. You've got to connect in the last 12 months and more. It's what connection is, how important it is to us What disconnection is, I think, has created a different meaning and we've got a different relationship with it. Only this week I had a conversation with a group of people where we talked about the difference of being alone versus feeling lonely. And I'm interested in through what you researched and how, you know, why connection, first of all, that it was number one, but also that it's, that it's a core part of care. Did you mm. walk through or how do you see that difference between being alone and that sense of feeling lonely? I think it's a really important distinction to make. And like, I'm 39 and I just figured it out to be perfectly honest. <laughs> I, I struggled with it because I'm introverted. Like I'm very, very, very introverted. So I like being alone. And for the longest time, I thought that that meant I wasn't allowed to say that I was lonely. And it, I think it was probably the last two or three years for me that I recognized like a huge difference. It's day and night. Being alone is to me, either something that you're choosing to do or something that you recognize as a fact, you know, I'm alone. Maybe you're introverted. Maybe you live alone. Uh, maybe you're, you know, your partner works fly in, fly out, whatever you're alone. Loneliness is that heart feeling of isolation. You know, you can be sitting in a room full of people and feel completely isolated. And to me, that's, that's loneliness. It's that lack of a deeper connection to people. And I think my second tension with that sort of over the last 10 years as I've gotten to know myself is that, sorry, I don't know if you can hear my dog. (laughs) Just telling you, you're not alone. (laughs) Yes, I'm not alone. I'm not alone. Um, So I think that the tension for me with it, like the second tension there is that I I'm someone who enjoys a slower pace of life. Like I do a lot to kind of cultivate that uh, when I can. So I don't get to complain about being lonely if I don't have a packed social calendar either, you know, and that was really where I landed a couple of years ago and thought that this is all my fault. Like it's my fault that I'm lonely. And that caused me to really dig in deep to what it was that I felt like I was lacking. You know, I have a really great relationship with my husband. I've got two kids who still like being around us, which is brilliant. You know, I've got, I'm one of four girls. I I talk to my parents frequently, you know, all of that stuff. So I didn't have any right to be lonely, but there was some lack of 
belonging to a, a wider group or a community, I guess. And that's something that I've had to really try and work on over the last couple of years. And it's phenomenal to me to see how quickly my perception of community and belonging shifted, even with the smallest of efforts. I work from home and pre-COVID, obviously, I started to go down to the local coffee shop once a week and work there. And that's it. Like, that's it. That's no magic to it. It's That's literally what I did. And over time, you start to recognize the same faces. You say hello to the people who work there. They get to know your name. And it's just this sense of very gentle belonging. And then I, you know, started volunteering a day a week, uh, a day a term at the kids' school in the canteen. Same thing. You just get to know people. It's, it's a really gradual, gentle process. Well, it has been for me because I'm not someone who's like, I need to go and make five new best friends. That makes me feel sweaty. <laughs> <laughs> but so, once a yeah. month is fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But it was still a conscious, um, a conscious decision. It had to be, you know, it was, and I think I really fell into the trap of modern connection, right? So social media, digital connection. Mm. Um, you know, I've got lots of friends on Instagram and I will like, I'll send them a heart sometimes and we're friends. And, you know, if we sat down in person, we'd really get along. That's great and true. But it's also not happening, you know, at any rate that is filling me up again. Um, so I, I also had to get a little more vulnerable. And I think that's something that we struggle with, you know, being vulnerable and putting yourself out there and being the person to instigate conversation, that kind of stuff. Um, but yes, it had to be a really conscious, intentional decision. And that, I guess, was a, it was an advantage because I was then able to see the results of that. It wasn't something that I did unconsciously. You talk about, um, and you talk about that, uh, being a connection conundrum between yes. digital versus analog. We can, we can, you know, all signs say we're well connected and yet we can still have this deep longing to belong, which is exactly that sense of loneliness. And I don't think it's necessarily as, as cut and dry as saying, you know, digital bad, analog good in terms of connection, because there are so many reasons why digital connection has saved people, you know, and, and been a real lifeline over the last 18 months for almost all of us. But even, you know, outside of COVID, uh, you know, people who don't, who, who have mobility issues, for example, who live regionally and aren't able to connect face to face with people who share similar interests. I think there are so many reasons why we can utilize the digital connection, but I think that that is a layer of intentionality that we take to it. Whereas social media maybe is so easy to, to feel like we're, we're doing that, but we may not necessarily be getting the same benefits. But I do think that, you know, eye contact in person, like a wave, a smile, they are tiny actions that have huge impact on us, particularly if we're able to do it face-to-face sometimes. Um, and it's just so easy to negate or ignore those things when they're digital. You know, I don't think we necessarily value them as highly by default as we would face-to-face. I think it's really important dialogue to that dives deeper into what is is connection and the intention around that. And um, I was going to ask you around, you know, just the importance of touch of of that kind of physicality of and what you found in your your research in writing the book of again the intention of connecting through eye contact through a wave that can translate into a digital platform. 
as well, even though it may not have the physicality of it, but the intention yep. that sits behind that. How important is that as we, we, I guess, play with this thread of connection in helping us to care more? Yeah, I think the intention behind it is so important. You know, I, again, I think the more intentional you are about anything, the more likely you're going to be engaged with what happens next. You know, if it's just a throwaway, if it's something that you haven't really consciously thought about in person or otherwise, um, you know, I talk a little bit about transactional interactions, you know, between humans, even if they're face to face, that's kind of similar. I think we, we don't necessarily recognize that the person on the other side of the cash register or, you know, the person who hands us our delivery dinner, like, we don't really recognize each other as human beings, you know, and that we are, but a tiny little fraction of their day, just like they are of ours. And I think that even going to those sorts of interactions with people with a little bit of intention shifts it, it changes it, you know, all of a sudden you're making eye contact with a complete stranger who has their own, their own shit to deal with. And, you know, there's something really like galvanizing in that, I think. So I, I think same thing with a digital connection as well. If you go into it with intention, it makes all the difference. You know, you're kind of putting a little bit of your heart into whatever it is that you're doing. And yes, that makes you feel vulnerable, you know, because we don't like the idea of rejection. We don't like the idea of our friendly wave being ignored or, you know, our smile. Or worse, being... a middle finger. Or, you know. Exactly. Exactly. You know, and we really do fear that. And eye contact is one of those things where, you know, you make yourself vulnerable to a person. And I think that that's kind of a secret here though, is to allow yourself to have a little bit of vulnerability when it's safe, obviously. And when, you know, you can handle it, uh, but it, 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 it makes an interaction completely different than if we kind of barge through everything with our armor and our walls up and, you know, we're impenetrable, but that means we're kind of totally impenetrable, which shuts us down from a lot of opportunities. Shuts us down from community as yeah, well. Exactly. Um, yep. So yeah, even, even as I sit here kind of smiling, it is bringing that caring about connection is uh it's really kind of the core of it and it comes back into that full circle so that's one of the three uh the second one I wanted to dive into is nature mm -hmm. you describe yourself on your website as a tree hugger have you always been a tree hugger uh no no I haven't I've, I think I've always enjoyed being outdoors you know I grew up in a family that spent a lot of time outdoors my mum would always kick me outside if I complained of being bored and I would always find something to do much to my annoyance. But as I got older, I really, probably from high school onwards, I really started to lose that, uh, that attachment to the outside world. And that certainly didn't improve as I finished uni and got my first job and all like there were, there were years where I would have spent maybe 10% of my life outside. And most of that was walking to and from the bus. Like it was pretty dire and I think when Ben and I moved to the Blue Mountains and I think, um, so I was pregnant with our first baby, so it was a while ago, I think that was us sort of unconsciously looking for more of an outdoors-oriented lifestyle. But, of course, you know, we moved to the Blue Mountains. He worked in Sydney, so it was sort of a three-and-a-half, four-hour commute for him. I ran my own business, so I just sat inside in a different place. And then when our, our daughter was born, I would 
maybe go for a little walk and and that was it. And then I I decided I wanted to grow a veggie garden in our new backyard. So I had a stack of veggie books, you know, veggie gardening books next to my bed and I would read them. I would draw up plans. I would research why, you know, crop rotation was important, all of that kind of stuff. And instead of going out and building a veggie garden, I got addicted to a digital farming game on my phone. Did you win? (laughs) I was very good. (laughs) The corn was killing it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. My apples were just top notch. Um, And I spent quite literally hours a week on this stupid game that did nothing other than take me away from the time that I was craving outdoors. And I mean, I'm quite embarrassed to admit to you that I think I played it for like a year before I figured out that this was dumb and I finally deleted it. And I think that weirdly enough was my entry point into loving nature because I'm like, okay, what do I do with all this time? Uh, I could go outside, you know, and I planted some things in the ground and, and it all kind of stemmed from there. And that was at the same time that I was living with very severe postnatal depression. So, you know, all fairness to me, I probably wasn't in the right headspace to make huge changes to the way that I was living at the time, but that felt like a really positive one. And funnily enough, gardening kind of ended up becoming a bit of therapy to me. And that led me into, you know, reading more about like just trees and plants and that kind of thing, which led me into wanting to go bushwalking. And I think it was a very slow process, but I'm definitely now a tree hugger, (laughs) reformed, reformed digital farmer. (laughs) I'm sure the corn's fine without you. (laughs) I'm sure. I'm sure it's fine. It's such a, is, did you have a sense that this element was, was always going to be a part of the book that Nate, that connection to nature and sounds like that, you know, your own experience meant that it, um, it had a component of it. Um, when you think about care and the ways that we can care more, Mm. what are the ways that we can bring that idea more to the forefront because I think even what you described before in amongst the busyness we can be living in the bush and not connected to nature we can be in the middle of the city and feel really connected yeah to nature so what what helps prompt you and therefore you know or what have you seen that would be helpful to allow people that permission mm. and that reminder to reconnect with nature yeah i think a certain sense of um, belonging to nature is really helpful because you become uh, a member of the community, you know, the the natural community, the natural neighbourhood. So I think that anything that we can do that helps us to feel a sense of connection to place, um, whatever our place looks like in terms of a natural, that natural link, is going to hold us in really good stead if we've got the intention there of of connecting, making that connection. So I'm a huge advocate for making these actions as small as possible because one of the underlying reasons for the book was accessibility to these ideas. You know, I I got really fed up with care and self-care and all of these other kind of wellness ideas being essentially inaccessible to the majority of us for geographical reasons, financial reasons, accessibility reasons, whatever. I wanted everything in this book to 
apply to the majority of us, you know, and I hope that across the board, everyone finds something on the pages that, that work. So that was sort of what was driving me to a do the research that I did for this chapter and b go really small. So even someone who is stuck inside an office all day can do things that help to tap them into the natural world. And that's because we are part of the natural world. You know, we as human beings, I think like to generally speaking, see ourselves in dominion over the natural world, you know, with our technology and our transport and, you know, take that kind of nature (laughs) sort of approach to things. And that removes us from our view of the natural world. And the reality is that we breathe oxygen, you know, and that links us directly to the natural world. We ourselves are a uh, our own ecosystem, you know, in our bodies, and we add up to create an ecosystem in our local area, in our family home, in, you know, our communities. There is no way to separate us. So I think that's really helpful to sort of use as your, your mindset. And then something as simple as looking at a photo of a natural place, green, a wild place, somewhere that you've been that you loved, it doesn't matter what it is, that is enough to shift your uh, your body chemistry and your brain chemistry almost as though you were actually at that place. And I think that that's phenomenal because not only do you get the benefits even on those days where you can't leave the office, you also start to feel, to build that sense of belonging to the place. And with belonging comes love and a desire to protect and the view of yourself as part of the, um, you know, the natural neighborhood, like I said, and I've got this little spot in my garden. It's this crappy little blue bench that the previous neighbors left and we just never bothered to move. And I try and sit there most days and just look at what's around me, you know, and most of the time it's overgrown and I can see a lot of weeds, but I can also see, um, you know, the bees at particular times of the year. And then, you know, the plum blossoms in spring and this time of year, the Japanese maple leaves are bright red and, you know, to be able to recognize the patterns and the rhythms that happen in just like a a bog standard little corner of my garden means that I I have this sense of um, responsibility. And I think that anything that we can do to encourage that for ourselves, for, you know, the environment that we all share, for the natural world that we're all part of is going to be a benefit. Yeah, I really do. I really do believe that. Um, And I also write a little bit about something as simple and almost probably a bit expected (laughs) as um, essential oils. So I almost saw you roll your eyes then. (laughs) I, I kind of, I do because. You know, you talk about wellness and everyone's like essential oils, you know, and they're going to cure Ebola and sorry, they're probably not, Um, but they have so many benefits and they come, I mean, they are essential oils extruded from trees. So if you go and walk in amongst trees, you, you experience these benefits and they range from brain function to immunity, to your gut health, to your ability to fight off, you know, infection and and slower, a lower heart rate and lower blood pressure and lower um, cholesterol all from walking in amongst the trees. We can't always do that, but we can get some essential oils and we can diffuse them in our home or in our workplace. And there's a lot of research that shows they actually deliver a lot of the same benefits 
So, you know, there might be days or weeks where it's simply not possible to go and run around in the trees, but there are things that you can do that still bring you those benefits. Um, and I think knowing that also strengthens the bond you feel with nature or trees or, you know, whatever it may be. It's engaging so, yeah. the senses and, um, I think one, you know, the the takeaway from what you've said is that we are nature. Like it's not about yeah. going to nature. It's uh, it's actually we can't avoid it. No, <laughs> no. <laughs> whether you want to or not. <laughs> no, so recognizing the our own seasons, our own state and shift and change. There's, I mean, you 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 dive into so many different areas. You you look, you talk about kindness. You talk about awe making. As opposed mm-hmm. to creativity, which I, um, there's like I'm, was I hard pressed to try to pick three, movement, play, rest. But the final one I want to touch on is healing, and you talk mm-hmm. about the importance of healing. And where I I read and and whether it's kind of the space I'm coming from, and we're actually talking today. I I went out into nature and tripped over and um, have a tiny fracture in my middle finger. So I've got this splint on, but it's become this kind of metaphor for me in the last week because the splint isn't healing my finger. It's not fixing it. It's not doing anything, right? All it is is a protective mechanism to not overstretch. That's all it is while the healing happens. And it has this second virtue of being an outward signal for people to go, oh, I hope you're okay, where sometimes the scars of the heart don't have that same, we don't get to carry the same splint or so So I've kind of got this, um, that's front of mind for me. So that's why I'm kind of picking that one. What's your permission or relationship and how has that changed to allow rest and healing to happen? Mm. Because I don't think we do. I don't think we do either. And I, I love that metaphor of the splint on your finger. You know, the splint is not healing you. The stillness is. Um, and I think that that's, again, a really powerful thing to recognize in ourselves uh, because, again, like you say, we are not encouraged. We don't have role models for that sort of behavior. We don't have a shared language for or a social contract, you know, for what happens when we're really hurting and I, we may not be physically hurting. No, but even but that, I, I spent three days going, oh, it's just bruised, it's fine yep. because I could move it. The moment I saw it on an X-ray, I went, oh, that's the permission. And yet yes. why do we wait for that even? <laughs> I, I think we're just, we're just so immersed in this idea of like success equals busyness and that downtime equals laziness, you know, hustlers prosper (laughs) and slackers don't. And that's the thing that we're kind of brought up on. You don't, don't be lazy. You know, our our downtime needs to be productive. Mm. Uh, You know, if you say to someone, what are you doing? Nothing. Okay. So like, you know, what does that actually look like? No, I'm literally doing nothing. You know, that's not something. So you must be writing your next book in your head. Like, exactly. (laughs) No, I'm literally just sitting here thinking my thoughts or not, you know, and feeling my feelings or not. It's, it's a really alien idea concept to us. So I think first of all, just recognizing that we are not very often given permission to do that. Um, and that when we try, we feel guilty, like that's normal. If you find yourself, I'm exhausted. I actually need a rest, but you feel guilty. Don't let that be the reason you stop because everyone will feel that. 
And I've discovered that the more you practice, the less you feel guilty. <laughs> so keep at it. Um, but I also think that it would be so helpful if we had language around this. Like I write very briefly in the book about this Tahitian um, idea of few, uh, F-I-U, and I love that it's pronounced few uh, as well because it is essentially, from my understanding anyway, a word that just in three letters sums up everything that you and I have discussed in terms of burnout, emotional, physical, mental, doesn't matter. Uh, and not only that, but it is a an acceptable reason to not do something. I read about stores that have got, you know, we're closed. Sorry, we're closed. You know, the owner is few. And uh, sorry, boss, I'm not coming in. I'm few. And that's accepted because that's a social contract. You know, you take the time when you need to, and I will take the time when I need to. And I know that in that give and take, we're creating belonging and community and care for each other. So, I mean, I think that is such a powerful yeah. idea that I would love to see it's people experiment with, you know, in powerful. Western culture. Yeah. Because not only does it remove guilt, it gets, it removes the resentment that someone else isn't looking out for me, which I think is one of the other baggages we carry around all the yeah. time is like, but surely you've seen and I'm working and I'm I'm waiting for someone to tap me on the shoulder and say, go and have a live down. And they don't come. <laughs> and they don't. No, because everyone else is wrapped up in all the stuff that they are doing and they want someone to say, actually, you know what? Go and have a rest. I think. I think you're right. You know, it, re it removes that resentment and also the resentment of, well, you know, easy for you, you can go off. No, it's for everyone. You know, everyone gets the opportunity to say, you know what, I'm done. I need some time and I'll be back when I can be. I mean, that just, like, it makes me feel like crying as a concept of care and collective love for each other, you know, and I'd, I'd love to know more about how prevalent it still is and what the pressures have, um, have been on that, that idea socially over the last 10 or 20 years as the world has shifted, but, you know, don't wait for someone else to bring it up. I think that's one of my takeaways with this idea of healing. And if you, you need that village, you know, and you have it maybe in some sense, but you're not getting that, come on, come sit down, take a minute take a day. Let me look after this. You're not getting that. Have the conversation with your friends, have the conversation with your family, with your siblings, with communities, and just see, because I have a, an inkling that the last 18 months has really worn down some of those barriers. You know, I think working from home for a lot of us has made us all seem more human to each other. You know, it's really easy to see your boss as a human when you see the dirty laundry behind them, you know, um, or listen to their dogs barking or their kids playing. I, yeah, I have a feeling that we're ripe for this discussion at the moment. I have no idea what it'll look like, obviously, but I have hope. Yeah. And let's not miss the opportunity. To exactly. Do it in this timing, uh, there's so many more of this I want to dive into. But you, uh, the book has, as of yesterday, yes. uh, so when this podcast out, it'll be a few weeks. But as of yesterday, when we're speaking, the book has gone out into the world here in Australia and New Zealand, and will no doubt go beyond from there. As you go into navigating your own energy in putting the book out into the world and the conversations that you have, are there any non-negotiables that you have about how you will care? Rest is my number one thing. 
honestly. I'm very happy to hold nana hours, you know, in my life. I go go to bed at 8 30, 9 o'clock, have my cup of tea before. And I truly feel like that is one of the non-negotiables. And then I have sort of this suite of things that I will pick one out of um, most days. And it might be journaling or it might be stretching or it might be going for an extra long walk or, uh, you know, cooking a super, super nutritious meal and then like freezing 10 portions of it. Um, And I think if I'm able to tap into one of those, even in a really small way, particularly over the coming weeks as things get a little more hectic than I'm used to, that will hold me in pretty good stead, I think. Yeah. Here's to not burning out at the end of it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Noticing (laughs) along the way. We'll obviously be um, sharing all the links and places that people can follow you, can grab a copy of this book, previous book, listen to your podcast and and follow uh, your events. I want to wrap up with a final question of this podcast. The podcast is called Stand Out Life. When you hear that term, what does it mean to you to live a standout life? I immediately think of someone who is quite literally standing in a stream and starting to make their way against the the flow of water. It's, you know, immediately what I think of. And, uh, you know, wrapped up in all of that is having the practical tools and um, the strategies for dealing with when the flow gets really strong, pushing you the other way, you know, and I think that's, that's the journey. Beautiful. I love that. That sense of the water will go around you. There'll be moments of soaking that up. Yep. And help when you need it. Exactly. Brooke, it's been such a delight spending this time with you. Thank you for birthing this book out into the world. And I'm glad that she became what she became. <laughs> and um, and uh, yeah, all the best with, um, with what's next. Thank you, Ali. It's been genuine pleasure. If you've enjoyed today's episode, then there's every chance that you might also enjoy reading a copy of my book called Stand Out, a real world guide to get clear, find purpose and become the boss of busy. You can grab a copy by heading to my website, www.alisonhill.com.au. If you liked what you heard in this episode, I'd love it if you could take a few moments, pop over to iTunes and give this podcast a quick rating so that we can continue to share these conversations with people around the world. As always, I'm Ali Hill and this is Standout Life.